Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Recent uh, exposure on Twitter and uh, YouTube and whatnot has really exploded my channel lately in a really positive way, and I've been getting flooded with comments and questions and communications and whatnot, and I really want to thank everybody out there for your support and your favorable comments and whatnot about the work that I'm doing. I really appreciate it. And of course, not everybody's favorable to everything that I'm doing, but that's fine. Uh, I appreciate constructive criticism as well. And, uh, and as we roll into 2017, I think we are really uh, seeing you know, the, that Scientology has gone past a tipping point uh, in terms of the public exposure. And I know that those are hopeful words and maybe overly optimistic. And I don't mean by that that we're going to see the downfall of the Church of Scientology in 2017. But I definitely think we have passed a point of no return in terms of their ability to get new members, in terms of their ability to speak in such a way that anybody believes anything that they say as an organization. And I think um, more and more people see very clearly that individual Scientologists who speak out in support of that organization are, uh, are pretty deluded in terms of what they're saying because the exposure of the abuses and the crimes of Scientology has been so widespread now that it is just unbelievable that somebody would speak out in support of that organization. And they miss the fact that while a personal testimonial that somebody has had wins or gains or experienced you know, some degree of happiness or, or change in their, in their life in a positive way because of Scientology, that kind of testimonial is fine. There's, there's no argument with that. That's not the point of what I do, what Leah does, what any of us people who are speaking out about the abuses of Scientology. We're not trying to take away from any of that. What we're trying to do is show that there are pros and there are cons to being involved in Scientology. And the pros do not outweigh the cons. And this, the, the very structure and DNA of Scientology is put together in a way that it is something that takes advantage of its members and it is abusive, and especially at its highest levels. Right at a, at a street level or at a regular level, it's, it's manipulative, it's uh, money grubbing and that sort of thing, but it's not necessarily going to ruin your life if you simply walk in and ask them a few questions. But when you get involved for you know, years and years and you give over so, many of, so much of your money and your time and your resources and get so little back in return, uh, you, know, you really should be questioning the value of this organization and its influence in your life. And that's what the individual Scientologists are not doing. And they seem to miss on the fact that, that there are cons as well as pros to this, uh, you know, to this matter. So anyway, I just wanted to comment on that briefly because I wanted to be clear for any new members who are coming on board here with, because uh, I'm, you know, getting a lot of new, new viewers and whatnot, what attitude I have in approaching this and how it is that I feel now about the organization and what it's doing and why organizationally there is a real problem with Scientology, even if the individual testimonials and, and, and gains and whatnot that people have had, you know, there's some validity to that and I'm not trying to take any of that away. 
I'm simply pointing out that that doesn't outweigh the destructiveness of this group, period. Just like no question about it. So that all being said, let's go ahead and get to some of your questions now because we've got a lot of them. Carol Rogers. Hi, Chris. Is there a singular moment that stands out in your CFS time that has become particularly difficult and or haunting to you after your exit where, as it was not clear to you when you were ensconced in full church Scientology practices? Keep up the good work and stay strong. Yeah, I'd have to say, actually, that when I first came out of Scientology, actually when I was in Scientology and experienced the RPF, the Rehabilitation Project Force, um, which is Scientology's re-education camp for, you know, people who have become uh, in the C organization only, not public Scientologists, not staff members, but C organization members, can be sent to this program where they are, um, you know, basically go through a whole re-indoctrination and re-education program in order to get with the program again and, um, and kind of get back into Scientology's good graces because when you go to the RPF, you're one step up from, uh, you know, being kicked out of the C organization and being considered not suppressive. They won't declare you just because you go there, but they, but they definitely, you are considered, you know, a third-class citizen and not somebody in, in favor with anybody. Um, I was on the RPF for three years. I'm going to detail all of the experience at some point, hopefully, well, not hopefully, this year, that is going to happen. But uh, to answer this question, when I was in the C organization, I was in a frame of mind that I deserved to, you know, I deserved the RPF. This was all the, the, the horrible, awful things that happened to me while I was on the RPF were something that I had, you know, committed crimes and actions that deserved that, right? Which, which is not true at all. And, um, and so the things that happened to me while I was on the RPF, and there were a few things, there was, there was you know, physical, you know, assault and that sort of thing. There, I, I broke my finger uh, while I was there. And, and in fact, just to, just to demonstrate an example of, of what I'm talking about, this might be a good specific of what I'm talking about. I broke my finger uh, in an accident on the RPF, uh, the, the top of my middle finger on my left hand. And, um, and it, was, it was, you know, split, the bone was. Um, and I was denied uh, hospital care for the first 24 hours of that. The person who was in charge of the RPF um, thought that, you know, pain was a good thing. That pain was, actually, he thought that specifically, he said that pain was something that just existed in your head and you could overcome it if you want, if you know, with through force of will and, and intention. And so he didn't give any credence to the idea that I was in pain or even that my finger was broken. And so I ended up not going to the hospital and, uh, and it was, I've never broken a bone in my body up until that point. And so it was absolutely the single most painful experience I've, I've ever had. Um, kind of surprising actually, you know, it swells up and it's just an incredible amount of pain. And so I, I tried to sleep that night in my, in my bunk bed and, uh, and could not sleep at all because of the pain. It was, it was actually excruciating. And uh, the next morning, uh, the Sea Org member, one of the Sea Org members who was in charge of the RPF, the person who was denying me the medical care and saying that I couldn't go to the hospital was, a, was an RPFer also. He was the RPFer who was in charge of the RPF, right? 
But there, then there's a senior person called the RPF in charge, and he had a deputy, and, and she was, uh, you know, heard about this, and she was like, what? You didn't go to the hospital. What the hell's wrong with you? And it, of course, it was all my fault, right? And I'm like, uh, uh, you know, as I'm standing there in excruciating pain the next morning, uh, she's like, yeah, go to the hospital. And he was arguing against it. You know, no, he doesn't have to go to the hospital. And she's like, are you crazy? He's going to the hospital. And, uh, and so, you know, off I went to find out that I had a broken finger, right? And, uh, and, if, and I couldn't take, you know, uh, pain medications because I was supposed to be getting Scientology counseling or the auditing, right, sec checking while I was there on the RPF. Every day you're supposed to go in and so uh, into, these, into these auditing sessions and give up all of your crimes, right? So you can't be on pain meds and do that. And so I, you know, had to, st- I had to suffer on through that. And at the time, you know, I thought that kind of sucked. But looking back on it now, and that was just one of many things that happened while I was on the RPF, that I was on it for three years, right? And this was just, it was, not, it was the worst experience in my life. Absolutely, like without question, it was awful. Um, you know, I looked, I, but, but at the time I just sort of, took that in, in stride, like, okay, well, I kind of deserve this, and this is sort of what's happening, and the RPF is supposed to be tough and rough and all this, and so, you know, whatever. Well, I look back on that now, you know, after I got out of the Sea Org, and then I started acclimating to real life and the real world and seeing how things work, I look back on experiences like that in, in, in somewhat, in, you know, in, in, in some degree of horror, right? Like, wow, I can't, what was I thinking that I, that that happened? And, that I allowed that to happen, that I put myself in that position, that I allowed myself to be treated that way. Um, you know, because I still look at it from the, from the point of view that I, I have some responsibility for that. But at the same time, I was, you know, being treated like, like chattel. And I look at a lot of my sea work experience that way now. Whereas, and, it, and I guess what it comes down to is redefining what's normal, you know. Uh, we can change our ideas of what's normal, what's acceptable, what are we going to put up with, and that sort of thing. But and that doesn't really matter. You know, if, if you're in an abusive situation, it doesn't matter what you think about how normal or abnormal it is. If it's abusive, it's abusive. If you're getting, your, if you're getting beat up, if you're being mentally tortured, emotionally tortured, that's just what it is, you know, and you... And, and it took me some time and distance away from it to be able to put that into perspective. And I'm glad that I've, you know, got myself that time and distance now so I can see it a lot more clearly. Mandy Franks, I have a question coming from Leah Remini's show that you've also touched on in past videos. In the most recent episode, someone brought up the freeloader bill. Of course, I understand the concept of it, but as she said, she signed when she was 16 why would she be worried that it would hold up as a legitimate contract and that she could be forced to pay it once she was outside Scientology? Surely that contract wouldn't hold up in any outside court to force her. There seems, this question gets asked a lot and it seems to be a very misunderstood idea in terms of the enforceability of the free order bill. So let me, let me talk about this. In Scientology, when you join staff or you join the C organization, you agree to work for the organization as a volunteer, basically meaning they don't have to pay you anything. But what they do agree to do is give you free Scientology courses and auditing, counseling. 
and um, and that's the that's the the freebie that you get by you know joining up and, and working for the organization. Some staff members are able to take advantage of that and move up that bridge to total freedom on staff or in the Sea Org, but most are not. And you'll find on a if you survey the staff in the Sea Org that you know probably 75-80% of them hardly move at all on that bridge to total freedom. They're, they are doing a lot of staff-oriented training and that sort of thing with, their, with the study time that they're given, and very few of them are actually doing Scientology services the same way that the public do, you know, when the public pay for the services. So the freeloader bill is an agreement that if you leave staff or if you leave the Sea Org before your contract is up, you will agree to pay money for those services that you received. And that includes the staff training courses and whatnot. They assign a monetary value to those too. So, you know, while many staff and many Sea Org members don't make a lot of progress, they still do the staff training and some of them make a modicum of progress over the years. It just tends to take a way longer period of time than the public people who just come in, pay for their services, and receive them right away. So here's the deal, though, with the enforceability of it. It's, it's not that no one in Scientology cares at all about the legal enforceability of the freeloader bill. Within the world of Scientology, it is enforceable. And that's all that matters to them. If you leave staff or you leave the Sea Org and you still want to be a Scientologist and do Scientology, you have to pay that bill because the Scientologists are under no obligation to give you any services or even if you pay them, they don't have to service you, right? Just in the same way that any business doesn't have to service you just because you walk in with money. So the agreement within the world of Scientology is that you will pay this bill off in full, before, and you will do other actions to make amends for having left staff or left the Sea Org before you will be allowed to continue in Scientology. And that is 1,000% enforceable. No one can tell Scientology they can't do that, right? Now, they will not take you to court to pursue that freeloader bill because it's not enforceable that way. But what they're holding over you is not a legal contract, it's a Scientology contract, right? And they can enforce that, and they do. And they will, of course, contact people who have left staff and left the Sea Org and try to encourage them to pay their freeloader bill so that the person can continue doing Scientology services. You know, hey, Joe, you, want it, you, you do want to continue with Scientology, right? It's important to you, right? I mean, this is the bridge to total freedom and you really want to do this, right? So you got to pay this bill. And if the guy goes, hey, fuck off, I don't want to pay the bill and I don't want to have anything to do with you people again. Okay, good, game over, right? They're not going to keep persisting on the guy or keep calling. Well, they will keep calling him actually for quite a while, but they can't enforce that he pay that bill. It, the leverage is unless he wants to keep doing Scientology, okay? So that's... That's the leverage on it. It's not a legal leverage, and I hope that really makes this clear. Mary Cat, I've learned many of Scientology acronyms and stupid words that they use. One thing I don't understand is what is the birthday game? All right, the birthday game. 
In the 1970s, when L. Ron Hubbard was running around on the, on the ship, the, the, the ships that, uh, that made up the sea organization, he was asked by his aides and people who worked for him what he wanted for his birthday. March 13th is L. Ron Hubbard's birthday, and every year that would roll around, and Hubbard would always say, I want Scientology expansion. I want things to be bigger with Scientology. I want us reaching more people. I want, us, I want those statistics that, that we keep to be going up, 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 right? And uh, that's what I want. I don't, you know, I don't want a car. I don't want a house. I don't want a, you know, new ascot. I don't want a, you know, motorcycle or anything. Although he got all those things for his birthdays. Um, he said he wanted Scientology expansion. So what happened was either, I don't know whether he crafted it or his um, subordinates did, but they created, they, what, what Hubbard said and what I believe happened is the, the aides and the people who were working for him come you know, around February or March, they would start sending direction to all the Scientology organizations around the world saying L. Ron Hubbard's birthday is coming up and he wants expansion. So let's give him some, uh, you know, some up statistics, right? Let's have some production reflected in our production statistics. And as you know, every week, Scientology keeps track of how many new people came in, how many students were on course, how many people got audited, how many hours they were audited. They have hundreds of production statistics that they keep, and they graph these every week on pieces of paper. And Scientology staff and Sea Org members live and die by these statistics. So, so the measure of production would be reflected in these statistics. So it was always a thing to send Ron up statistics for his birthday. And so what formulated from this was a game. Because um, as Hubbard put it, um, the March 13th would come, all the statistics would be up, and then... After March 13th, no more birthday. Pfft, down go all the statistics, right? And everybody's like, rah, you know, how can, if you guys could do it this week, why can't you do it the next week and the next and the next, right? Because like I said, they, the, the staff and the Sea Org members, they, they live and die by these statistics, right? You can get in a lot of trouble if your statistics are down. So they formulated a game where they assigned every week points to up statistics. If your if your if your graph was a little bit up, you got one point. If it was way up, you got three points. And the idea was to keep them going up all year long. Okay, and this and and then they would assign points to each of the different statistics. And there were something like fifty or fifty-two statistics or something in every organization. So you could get you know, every week you could potentially make, if it was three points per graph and you could make every graph go straight up, you could potentially be getting three points. So that's 150, you know, 160, 170 points um, as an organization. And another organization, right? And it didn't matter if it was small organization with four staff or if it was a big organization with 50, that it was the slant of the line that determined how many points you were getting per statistic. And so a small org that might do a little bit better that week but have its graphs really up and so make a bunch of points and they could beat a larger organization, right, because the ratio of their expansion compared to the larger organization was more. So they were expanding more, therefore they were getting more points. 
And this birthday game, what they would do is tally all the points for all the organizations in quarter, every quarter, and every year. And at the end of the year, the organization that had the most points would win the birthday game. And they started holding in the 1980s and 90s, they started holding events where they would big, give big trophies to, these, to the executives of these organizations. And, and playing the birthday game amongst all the Scientology organizations around the world became a big deal. And because it was all based on the slant of those graphs, that's, this just increased the amount of pressure and, and drive to get those statistics up through any means possible, often falsely. And so you had every year, like just constantly going on, where we would be busting people for false statistics because they were faking it because they wanted to win the birthday game, right? Um, and like I said, and, and not just because of the birthday game itself, but because of the way Scientology staff and Sea Org members are run, you live and die by those statistics. So, you know, you, you, if you're getting in a lot of trouble for having a down statistic, but you are, you know, considered the bee's knees if your statistics are up and you're winning the birthday game, right, because they're tracking this every week, then you're considered a hero, right? You can go from zero to hero in a week by having these up statistics. So this was the birthday game, and this is was this was how it was played, and the and management, Scientology management, kept promoting this and kept pushing this game for years and years, even well after L. Ron Hubbard died. It just became a tradition, and it still is, uh, and that is the birthday game. X. C. Beskow, you mentioned Hubbard having two wives at the same time as an example of him having problems. These days, a lot of people, myself included, make a clear distinction between cheating and polyamory. Yet this distinction is about relationships rather than marriages. Polygamy is not legal. Could you tell us a bit more about how this whole thing with two wives worked? I mean, socially as well as legally. Were they married in a legal sense somehow? Did the wives know about it in advance and consented to it? Or was it something that Hubbard either kept secret from them or forced upon them? Okay, L. Ron Hubbard was a ladies' man. Uh, you know, he was an adulterer. He definitely, you know, and it's a little hard to believe because a lot of people look at him and just go, God, he's not very good looking. But he was charismatic. And especially in the 1940s or, well, sorry, 1950s, when he really got a lot of popularity and stuff, he, he was. He could, you know, he could light up a room and he could speak quite well to a group of people. What he was saying might not necessarily have made a lot of sense, but the way he said it and his sense of humor and his charisma definitely did make an impression on people. Now, how the two wives story happens is this. He married a woman named Polly, Polly Grubb. I think it was in the 1920s that they actually got married. They had a couple kids. And he was a writer and he was running around the country and then he uh, went into the war. He was married this whole time to Polly. He was kind of a... Um, uh, philanderer during all this time. He would travel. They lived in, uh, I think, predominantly Washington State. He traveled to New York often, uh, had affairs, this sort of thing, right? And, uh, and Polly just kind of put up with it. And he um, then, the war happened, and he went into the Navy. And then after he came out of the Navy, while he was being discharged, he was living down in California while his wife and kids were growing up up in Seattle. And they were still married. I mean, he'd go up and visit and this sort of thing every now and again, but he was pretty deadbeat dad. Um, 
But he was spending most of his time down in California, clearly not super interested in the marriage, not bringing his wife and kids down to California because they didn't want to come down to California. They had a whole life up in, uh, I think it was uh, Bremerton or Port Orchard or something like that up in, up in Washington State. And Polly's parents were there. I mean, they were established. They had a house. So they were not, they were waiting for Ron to come back to, to Washington, but he was hanging out down in LA. And this was in the 19, mid 1940s when he started getting involved with um, the occult and with Aleister uh, Crowley's uh, minion, Jack Parsons, uh, who was a rocket scientist. This was all in Pasadena, California. Actually, literally five minutes, he, he stayed five minutes away from where I grew up in Pasadena. So, during that time, when Hubbard went and lived with Jack Parsons, right after he was discharged from the Navy, he met Sarah Northrup. Sarah was Jack Parsons' girlfriend. And they were living in Jack Parsons' mansion along with other people because Jack attracted different people to his you know, uh, mansion because he just liked having people there. And Jack was practicing occult, the occult with, uh, uh, you know, he was uh, doing the OTO you know, Ordo Templi Ordinus uh, Orientis work under Crowley, and Hubbard got involved in that. But Hubbard was a con man, and he was conning Jack Parsons out of money and scheming with him to, um, to he was scheming to uh, rip Jack Parsons off, and he also ripped off Jack Parsons' girlfriend, Sarah. And they took off to Florida to start some business with Jack Parsons' money, and that tanked. And Jack Parsons found out that they were spending his money and taking advantage of him. And he went out there and shut them down. And Hubbard and Sarah then managed to have one of the boats that they had conned, that they had bought with Jack Parsons' money. They sold the boat, got married, and then moved to New York and then ended up back in California. And then ended up back in Washington State. And that was awkward as hell. And I don't, yeah, I'm not going to go into all the details of this, but they were up in Washington. Polly did not know about Sarah. Sarah did not know about Polly. So that is absolutely, without question, that is bigamy. Or sorry, polygamy. So, um, so Hubbard then worked out the divorce with Polly, right? That, was done, that became a done deal. And he was then just married to Sarah, and they then and then he um, I think they went out to New England, uh, and this was 1948-1949 time period, and Hubbard hooked up with um, oh Joseph Campbell, the guy who was editing uh, Astounding magazine, and that's when he wrote Dianetics, and uh, at at uh, Joseph Campbell's house in uh, in New England, and that was when Dianetics became a thing. And that was when that took off, and then, uh, you know, the rest is history, so to speak. So that's the story of the two wives and uh, Hubbard's uh, polygamy, and it's not a pleasant story. Hubbard abused both of those women, certainly emotionally, if not physically, and ended up doing some really bad things to, uh, to Sarah because they had a baby. And that's all, you know, again, written uh, history. You can look that up. I'm not going to talk about it in, this, in the answer to this question, but that Hubbard was just not a good guy when it came to how he treated women. Sonia Mallet. In episode three of Leah's show, she mentioned that in addition to buying Scientology books for herself, 
She was asked to buy and donate books to libraries who needed them. I immediately checked the public library catalog of my province of New Brunswick, Canada. We have a population of just over 750,000. That catalog gives a list of all books accessible through the, throughout the province. There are 61 entries for LRH as an author, 69 in all, the others being books like Barefaced Messiah, each for a different book, CD, set, or sound recordings. For example, there are four copies of Scientology 0-8, to The Book of Basics, and six copies of The Way to Happiness. There are also some of his sci-fi work. I was expecting to see his sci-fi work, but I was astounded at the number of Scientology books available through the public library system. This doesn't make any sense, as the closest church, a mission actually, is in the neighboring province of Nova Scotia. People here may have heard about Scientology because of Tom Cruise and John Travolta, but know very little about the religion and aren't interested. It made me wonder if these are church-sponsored donations. There are probably many other libraries around Canada, the U.S., and around the world that have Scientology books. Maybe others are also interested in having them removed. I want these books gone. My main question is, is this worth it? Would my time be better spent on something else? When someone is down and vulnerable, coming across a book that claims to have the answers to all your problems can be as damaging as someone asking you if you're interested in a free stress test. Leah's series stirred up my activism. I want to do something about this even though I was never in. Yeah, there's a lot of people right now asking what they can do to do something, anything, about Scientology. So let's talk about this for a minute. Um, the books that are in that library or in the libraries of your area were put there by Scientology, no question about it. And they have donated or they've gotten Scientologists to donate a lot of money over the years for the purpose of, of buying books from Scientology's publication houses, which are all in-house, and having those books produced and sent off to libraries. And this has been a big deal in Scientology. They made a lot of money off of this. It's a total racket. And they, um, because it doesn't cost Scientology that much to make these books, but they sell them to their parishioners at full price and then ship the books off to um, these libraries. Most of the libraries, or at least a lot of the libraries, ship the books right back to Scientology. They don't want the books. But in your case, they did, and they took them. So that happens, and that's why you have those books there. Um, I don't think uh, that censorship or taking those books out of the library or trying to ban those books or something like that is a good idea. I don't think any group should uh, be uh, cut off that way. I don't think that's an effective way to fight against Scientology because it is censorship and it is an inhibition of freedom of speech and um, and, and, and frankly, that's not the way to go about it, right? Exposing the crimes of Scientology, talking about the abuses of Scientology is the thing to do that will get people to realize that Scientology is a racket and a con and they don't need to, you know, get those books or read them or do anything, might have anything to do with them at all. Um, but trying to, you know, when you try to censor a group or take down a group or ban a group that way, it is so easy for that group to rile people up against that because people don't like censorship. At least a lot of people don't. I know I'm not talking about, you know, everybody because there's people on the religious right and whatnot who are all too happy to ban books and burn them. But that's not the people I'm talking about. That's a, that's a stupid minority of people. I'm talking about the general population doesn't like censorship, right, and doesn't like book banning and that sort of thing, and neither do I. So what can you do? Expose the truth, right? Be an activist that way. Let me give you an example of something that just happened yesterday. 
Scientology was going to do a uh, presentation, and this blew me away that they were going to do this. In one of the Clearwater, Florida front groups for Scientology, United for Human Rights is what they've called themselves, they were going to do a presentation on human rights abuses. Now, it is as Hippocratic as you can possibly get for Scientology to be opening their mouth about human rights abuses, but there they were. They were doing that, and somebody from the FBI office in Tampa was going to do a presentation at that event. Mike Rinder uh, blew this open, right? Got hold of the flyer, the promotional flyer for this, posted it on his blog, said this is this is crazy that this is happening. And me and a ton of other people actually got on the phones, called the Tampa FBI office, and we were like, dude, you, this is crazy that you guys are supporting this or are going to talk on a, you know, at a Scientology facility about human rights trafficking. You should be investigating Scientology for human trafficking, right? So that got the event canceled just like that, right? I mean, boom. The event's not happening now. At least the FBI is, has canceled their participation in it. Good, right? That's, that's immediate, short-term, but effective activism that, that can be done, right? Is education of government agencies, investigatory bodies, police forces about the abuses of Scientology. That's not book banning. That's not idea thought stopping. That is education. And that is something that anybody and everybody should do. Writing to your um, government leaders, right, your representatives. Uh, I, I don't know, you know, the whole system in Canada versus the United States, but whoever your government leaders or representatives are, write to them, educate them about the dangers of Scientology if it exists in your area or in areas where it does exist. And also support those of us who are doing this, you know, uh, you know with a good chunk of our lives, right? Um, in whatever way that, you know, you feel appropriate in doing that, you know, just talk us up, spread the links to our sites, you know, talk about our shows, whatever, right? Um, and of course, you know, I've got, I've got other means of support and, and other critics and stuff do too, right? And we could use your help in carrying on this fight because, um, you know, my YouTube channel, for example, is my job. This is what I do. I'm not a full-time Scientology critic. I am a full-time YouTuber. So, uh, so I don't, I don't look at, you know, the, what I do as getting paid to fight Scientology. I'm making a living by doing creative content creation here on YouTube, right? That's what I do. So, uh, you know, so supporting me, supporting other people who do this kind of work, supporting Leah, supporting Mike, uh, that's always very, very helpful as well, right? So anything at all that you can do that will get the word out, though, Right? I mean, because it doesn't, you know, you don't have to spend money to do this. You can, there's lots of things you can do, uh, including just talking it up and positively, uh, you know, uh, supporting, like I said, our work and uh, getting the word out through any means possible on social media, Twitter, Facebook, etc. All of that helps, right? And uh, that's what you can do. It's time for Flash Answers. Marissa Harris. I recalled it in the video in 1986 after L. Ron Hubbard died. David Miscavige called the year AD 36. And I know that AD is supposed to mean after Dianetics. But I'm wondering if Scientologists openly use this term in the organization. 
I have known Scientologists, and I don't remember them ever saying that they believe in this alternate calendar or them using it. When you were in Scientology, did you or your friends use this calendar? Only as a joke. Uh, really. Nobody in Scientology uses that calendar. Hubbard used it in talking in lectures and whatnot, but it's not like they've, you know, proposed some new Scientology calendar. It's just, it's kind of a joke. It's very lighthearted. Coco Tea. I'd like to know, and maybe you've covered this in a past show, if Child Protective Services have ever taken steps to get children removed from these facilities. I understand that parents have rights to live the way they choose, but a child has no say-so. Have any children who have ever escaped notified CPS? Not that I'm aware of. I have not, I've, I've never seen one case of Child Protective Services being notified because of anything going on within the C organization or where there was an abusive child situation because of Scientology. And that probably has to do with the fact that Scientologists themselves are indoctrinated to not contact legal or uh, legislative authorities about things that are going on within Scientology. And that indoctrination is very deep and very heavy. They don't trust what they call WOGs, right? People who are not Scientologists. And they will not go to outside forces like the police or the FBI or CPS or anything like that um, as their first level of recourse. It would be because they know that if they were to do that, that that would be the end for them as Scientologists. Stephen Willis. Is there anything which gives legitimate status to a public member of Scientology in the eyes of the church, staff, and Sea Org workers? I can think of wealth, fame, and how far up the bridge they are as contributing factors, but is there anything else? Probably the only thing I could, other thing I could think of that would give somebody status in, in the world would be how many people they've brought into Scientology, whether through recovering them to Scientology because they were once in and they left, or getting new people in, right, or selling books. Uh, they love book sales, right, and, uh, and getting people in that way. So that also gives you status, but it will never give you as much status as people who give large amounts of money. Because let's not ever forget, Scientology is about money. And that is, that is the, the sun that the Scientology world uh, orbits. So there you go. Okay, and that's the end of our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around. Please leave any comments, questions, feedback, good, bad, or indifferent in the section uh, below in the comments section. Thanks for coming around and watching. Please check out my Sensibly Speaking podcast this week with Aaron Smith-Levin. And uh, look forward to more critical thinking videos that I will be making, as well as Scientology-related content. Uh, I'm looking, really looking forward to 2017 being a year of really expanding this channel in a number of ways uh, to talk about Scientology for sure, but also expanding the content to uh, new and different, uh, well, maybe not so different directions, but definitely uh, expanding the content to include other destructive cults that are out there and other destructive groups and, uh, and also uh, pumping up some of the critical thinking content. So again, thanks for coming around. I'll see you guys next week.